Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Welcome to Business Line's State of Economy podcast on fintech regulations. I am Lokeshwari. RBI's directive to Paytm Payments Bank raises many questions regarding the compliance, supervision, and governance in the fintech segment. To answer our questions on these issues, we have with us Rishi Agarwal. Co-founder and CEO, Team Lease Regtech. Hello, Rishi. Welcome to the Business Line State of Economy podcast. Well, thank you, Lukishwari. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So, uh, let's begin with the issue that everyone is talking about. Uh, that is RBI's uh, order uh, regarding Paytm Payments Bank to stop taking deposits and to cease operations of all kind. So uh, we know that you are following this issue quite closely. Uh, what exactly was the trigger that made RBI act the way that it did? See, unlike what most people think, this is not a knee-jerk re- reaction by the regulator. This has been in the works for quite some time. Although, uh, you know, as they say, the last straw that broke the camel's back happened recently. But if you go back into the chronology of events, the problem started back in 2018 where RBI had temporarily halted opening of new accounts and payments bank owing to the violations in licensing conditions and non-compliance with the KYC norms. Later in 2021, RBI came back and it said that um, it had uncovered that Paytm Payment Bank Limited had submitted false information and the bank was fined about one crore in 2021. Further, in March of 2022, RBI barred Payments Bank from onboarding new customers. So that was in 2022, um, which was another item. In 2023, RBI, uh, October 2023, RBI imposed a penalty of about 5.39 crores on payments, uh, payment, uh, Paytm Payment Bank for continued non-compliance with the KYC norms. If you look at this, during 2022, time frame, RBI had directed PPBL to seize its customer onboarding activities. It cited that there were certain material supervisory concerns observed in the bank for action. It also directed the bank to appoint an IT audit firm to conduct a comprehensive system audit of its IT systems. The audit firm came back with a compliance validation report and revealed persistence non-compliance and continued material supervisory concern within the bank. So if you look at this, uh, this has been going on for the last few years, started back in 2018, uh, and then went on in 2020, 21, 22, 23. And if you look at the penalty, about 5, 6.5 crores of penalty in two different tranches has been imposed. And uh, RBI had uh, seized operations of certain kinds at different points in time. And now the issue is persistent non-compliance has caused this issue. So I think this is not a new issue. Non-compliance has been cited. Various examples have been cited in the past. And uh, this was the flashpoint where RBI ended uh, ha- handed down a severe penalty to the bank. So when we say compliance, so we're mainly talking about the KYC compliance, isn't it? Uh... That's right. That's right. So uh, they have not been compliant in the taking, uh, doing the KYC uh, checks properly. Is that what it's mainly about? Yes. Yeah, so there are 
a number of regulations that the central bank puts in place to make sure that the trust and credibility of the financial system stays, right? I mean, if you look at financial systems, the most important thing that they have is the trust of its users and depositors and borrowers and so on and so forth. And the moment the trust is lost, you know, we have seen what happens to the Silicon Valley Bank where suddenly there was a run on the bank. Uh, thousands of their depositors wanted their money back overnight and they went through a severe liquidity crisis. The, went, uh, the bank went down under. And if you look at some of the instances from other banks in the past, it is when the trust is lost, suddenly the financial institutions start crumbling. So the whole idea is to make sure that your institutional procedures and the controls and checks and balances are robust enough so that your financial systems do not have the inherent vulnerabilities. They cannot be exploited by uh, you know, uh, malicious users for uh, you know, AML, anti-money laundering kind of issues, you know, um, terrorist financing, drug abuse. Uh, we don't end up creating institutions that get misused for all kinds of many malicious and nefarious users. That is why it is very important to know who the users of the system are. Imagine a scenario where anyone can get a SIM card without any identification or establishing who they are and knowing traceability of the user of that SIM card. Today, if you look at Jandhan, Aadhaar and Mobile Trinity, J-A-M, between them, there is a very tight correlation between a mobile number, your Aadhaar number and your bank account. Now imagine a scenario where there are concerns about the KYC. That basically means the identity of the user who's on your, who's holding an account in your institution cannot be established with 100% credibility. That means there are forged documents potentially. There is misuse of somebody else's identity. They are able to open an account. They are able to put money into that account. They are able to withdraw money from that account. They are able to make payments to other accounts from there. So while KYC sounds like a simple problem or simple compliance, it forms the bedrock of a financial institution and the inherent trust that is established within such institutions. So if you have an issue with KYC compliance, technically what you're saying is, I don't know the full identity of the user who's on my system and the kind of transactions that can end up happening. Somebody can just open an account, do the transactions, engage in nefarious transactions, maybe used as a channel for potentially terrorist financing, drug money, money laundering, Havala transactions or what have you, and then close the account and disappear. And in the event of a crime being committed, there is no way for us to trace it back to the identity of the person who established that account in the first place. I'm just giving you an unrelated example of what happens with the KYC compliance. So know your customer is a very important part of a financial institution and the credibility and the trust that it needs to withhold primarily because of some of these issues. So as I said earlier, while the harsh action just got done now and everybody is taking account of the situation now, this has been in the works for many years now. And the persistence of the issue is something that has led the central bank to take such harsh action.
so what can fintechs actually do to um, ensure that they don't onboard uh, fake IDs and all that? Because we heard about about thousand uh, accounts being linked to one PAN number in in uh, Paytm, and also with the Bank of Baroda, that was a main issue, right? Lot of fake accounts being linked to one Aadhaar, one PAN number. So what what can uh, fintechs do to guard themselves, shield shield themselves? See, fin lot of people think fintechs are uh, born in some different planet. To me, fintechs are basically financial institutions who leverage technology to bring tremendous efficiency, cost reduction, and convenience to its customers. I mean, that's fundamentally the definition of fintech. What was done in a traditional way by traditional banks, fintechs come and disrupt those operations for reduced cost, better convenience, better access, better penetration, all of those things is what fintechs are supposed to do. Now, while they are trying to achieve those objectives, if you look at most of the fintechs in India, they end up raising a lot of capital from the PE firms and the VC firms. And when those kind of institutional investors are in the mix, there are specific compulsions on the rate at which these fintechs have to show growth. Now, if you look at an entrepreneur, and when the entrepreneur is in the driver's seat, there are really two pedals that they have access to. One is an accelerator and second is a brake. The accelerator is the growth accelerator, acquiring more accounts, disrupting the market, bringing more users on the platform, enabling more transactions on your system, and eventually creating a mass which creates more value for all the shareholders. Unfortunately, because of the way things have progressed, a number of entrepreneurs have taken notice of the accelerator, but have not necessarily looked at the brake which is accessible to them. So while multiple instances of poor compliance have been cited, they end up compromising some of these controls in favor of growth. I don't think it's a matter of people not knowing what to do. I also don't think it's a matter of not knowing how to do it. Some of these are technology companies. They have access to some of the best talent on technology available in the country. So it's not a matter of whether they know what to do or how to do it. It is a matter of prioritizing one over the other. And oftentimes, unfortunately, growth gets prioritized over controls, over compliance. And that's where, you, to your question, what should other fintechs do? They should realize that they have two pedals that they have access to, accelerator and brake. The entrepreneur there needs to know when to press which pedal so that they end up navigating their company through the regulatory ecosystem. They respect the compliance with the law of the land. Their efforts don't shake the trust that is required in the financial system of the country. And they end up being true to their cause of bringing convenience, access, availability, penetration, and cost to their end consumers rather than growth at any cost being the mantra. Now, the example that you took of 1,000 uh, accounts being linked to a single pan are, are, are concerning. You often wonder, how did these accounts get open? How come the technology system failed to flag these items? How come somebody who's responsible for supervising these transactions turned a blind eye? You don't even know who these people are who are leveraging these platforms and what kind of activities or nefarious actions they are doing. 
where is this money coming from and where is this money going, uh, you can never trust the system anymore. And that's where I think the real concern starts to emerge. And that's where I think while some entrepreneurs think this is too harsh, I think it is not too harsh because there has to be the rule of law in the country. And if there are specific compliances that are required for companies to do business with, those compliances have to be taken seriously because in absence of those compliances, the trust and credibility of the system is going to be questioned. Now, if you look at how Indian markets have attracted foreign investors, you would realize that a lot of foreign institutional investors have put money in the Indian banks. Ask yourself this question, why? It is because they trust the system. They trust the controls being enforced by the central bank. And that's why they know it for a fact that the markets are quite robust. There is risk management built in the fundamental DNA and fabric of the country. And that's why a lot of investors come in and put their capital. Now imagine some of these actions, they break that trust. They break the trust of their depositors. What happens? When there is a systemic market failure, who will we blame? It will be the central bank or the lack of action of the central bank. So I'm glad central bank is active. They are taking stock of these situations. They are highlighting compliance. In fact, on 31st of January this year, there was an important circular by RBI asking all the financial institutions, NBFCs and banks to have digital systems to manage and track their compliance. So I'm glad that central bank is not just creating a regulatory framework, it is also guiding institutions in the area of tracking and managing these compliances through a digital platform where they can track the life cycle of all the compliances that are applicable. They can enab enable collaboration between stakeholders. They can flag uh, you know, non-compliances, if any, at the right time so that action can be initiated. So I think these are all steps in the right direction. Uh, but do you think this is just the tip of the iceberg? Do you think uh, these kind of uh, uh, malpractices or whatever, uh, is, it could be rampant in the other, uh, uh, maybe wallet providers or payment banks or what's your view on this? See, in any country, in any economy, there will always be 95% people or somewhere thereabouts who play by the rules and there would be always 5% or so don't quote me on those numbers, but a large number would play by the rules and a small percentage would always be on the other side, right? You, you drive on the road and you will see 95% of the people are following the traffic rules, but there are a few who would always be in a hurry and want to break the traffic rules, right? You go to any country in the world from New York to London to Delhi, you will find that a lot of people want to live a peaceful life, whereas there are some malicious elements who would always engage in nefarious actions, right? Similarly, Companies are also of that kind. I mean, I talk about compliance as a whole lot and, you know, a lot of companies want to do well. Their heart is in the right place. They don't want to engage in fraud or perpetrating uh, crimes or, you know, engaging in anything which is like this. They want to do well. They want to do what is the right thing. Sometimes they don't end up doing that because of difference between thought and action. Because there are so many layers of management, sometimes the leaf node and their actions don't necessarily get all the way to the top. So always there are issues of that nature. But the fact is that you will always have a few players who will be on the wrong side. Our systems have to make sure that we enable the good players and we control the capability of the bad players. We control the intentions. There is a punitive system in place. Um, there are business ramifications of those actions. 
they not only financially pay for their misdeeds, they also have issues around closure of business, loss of licenses and NOCs, and it affects their shareholders. So shareholders start demanding transparency, accountability, transparency, and control. So I think those are, uh, I, I'm not surprised that there are players of that nature in the market and um, there will always be. I mean, you can never say that we are 100% compliant. What is important is that there are systems and processes to structurally identify non-compliances and make sure corrective action is brought to them. Uh, do you think that RBI has been adopting a very light touch uh, regulations as far as fintechs go so far? And uh, in, in order to foster innovation, of course, but uh, these could get tighter if uh, these kind of uh, instances recur too often? See, if you look at the history, and you're absolutely right that there has been a, a light touch regulatory regime so far, primarily because the size of the fintechs and their influence and their penetration was also limited. And as they are starting to play a much larger role than what they played 10 years ago, the kind of controls that are being brought in are in proportion to the size and influence that they carry. Fintechs are now responsible for billions of digital transactions. They are enabling a lot of loans. They are enabling sales of insurance, the portfolio management, the brokerage and all of that. And to me, it is expanding the size, the influence, the power of fintechs in the economy overall, their contribution is growing massively in size and scale. And that's where the proportion of the regulations that are now starting to come in are to make sure that this size and scale does not go in the wrong direction and does not end up destabilizing the financial credence of the country. So I definitely think along the way, you will see more of these regulations come in. Earlier, there were guidelines on digital lending, you know, uh, and many other things came into the picture in the recent times. And it's primarily because apps have become powerful. A lot of lending is happening through apps uh, in, in search of growth. Uh, caution is being thrown to wins. The collection practices uh, are non-existent. All kind of harassment has been brought to the fore. The interest rate key fact statements have been missing in action. Um, a lot of anti-customer practices came into the picture, high interest rates were being charged, uh, foreclosure rates were all over the place. So, you know, a lot of these things which are in the interest of the borrower have been compromised by unscrupulous elements in the ecosystem. So it's important to bring them within the ambit of the law and make sure some examples are being created so that non-compliance is being taken seriously and everybody in the ecosystem knows that compliance is not an optional guideline. Uh, this is how we play the uh, game. So uh, money laundering is something that RBI is really worried about. So uh, is, is there a big risk in uh, of money laundering through the fintech uh, ecosystem itself? And how is that being addressed through the regulations? See, if you go back to the basics, what is a fintech? Fintech is leveraging technology to enable convenience, cost, access, and so on and so forth. How is it different from, you know, opening a bank account? Yes, the speed at which you can open the bank account is much quicker with fintech because they are leveraging technology. They are doing a lot of those processes over technology. Lending has become very quick. What used to take a couple of months to do the due diligence on a borrower can now be done in a matter of minutes because 
lot of this information is brought in digitally, processed digitally, information is correlated digitally, decisions can quickly be made, risk can quickly be created because technology has enabled some things, right? So if you think about it, fintech is basically traditional financial system on steroids, right? More efficient, much faster, much cheaper, more accessible. You don't have to be in an urban area access the facility. If you have access to a 4G mobile phone or something like that with a smart uh, phone and uh, you know uh, an app ecosystem, you can download an app and within seconds you can provide the right information and regardless of which part of the world or country you're sitting in, you can get access to certain uh, facilities. So access, cost, efficiency are some of the key enablers uh, by a fintech ecosystem. Now your question on is RBI worried about fintechs being exploited for money laundering? Absolutely. I mean, if 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 the fintechs don't go by all the regulations while opening an account, while servicing an account, we don't have identity established, we don't have address established, we don't have the credibility established, then guess what? I mean, these accounts are just waiting to be exploited at the hands of uh, malicious elements. So... Yes, I mean, that is a concern in the whole ecosystem. And with, you know, 140 crore uh, Indians and a lot of them with mobile phone access and a lot of them with 4G access, uh, some of this can get precipitated in the economy very quickly. So it is important to nip this in the bud, make sure that some of the basic practices are taken very seriously and we don't end up letting it get out of control. Okay, um, the final question on uh, data privacy itself that uh, because we are giving a lot of data to all these fintech apps and so on, and we don't have a data privacy uh, law as such in place in India. So uh, how much is a customer's data at risk when we are giving all this data to the fintechs? And I think, how do you think these uh, laws can be tightened? What can be done? That's a great question. Um... We are nowhere close when it comes to uh, the data privacy and uh, standards and laws around it. We end up collecting data with impunity. We end up sharing, selling, exploiting this data with impunity. I was talking to someone else this morning and I was telling them that one of my health insurance policies was coming up for renewal. And I get a call from another insurance company. I'll not name any one of them right now. And the person tells me, sir, you have an insurance policy with this and this company and it is coming up for renewal on this and this date and you're paying a premium of so on and so forth. And I didn't want to call you and let you know that our policy, which is this, this, this policy is so much better than your that, that, that policy. And uh, you would save about 4,000 rupees if you... And I'm listening to the person with a lot of patience and trying to understand that how did this person get to know about me having an insurance policy with this company, with these details, with this premium, with this date, when it is coming up for renewal, it is obviously not an accident. It's a clear case where my data has been picked up by maybe a bunch of disgruntled employees internally, or I don't know what the other method is, from the client uh, or the vendor who's servicing me right now. And this data has been sold or shared uh, illegally with somebody else who was using this data in order to call me and trying to sell another policy to me. Now, this seems like an innocuous case where one company is trying to sell their product at a time where my 
insurance comes up for renewal. What it also flags is the whole underlying system of my data being available with one company and openly being rerouted in an unauthorized manner to another company is shameful. And this is not happening at an individual level. This is happening at an institutional level because obviously my service provider has no intention or no interest in selling my data to somebody else because they are the likely loser. So obviously there are elements within their organization or some such thing where this data is getting leaked. Now, this is just one instance since I understand compliance. Um, this comes to my attention very quickly. Imagine how rampant some of these practices are internally. The other thing is we are starting to become a digital economy. Very soon we have a target of becoming a $1 trillion digital economy. Everything from booking a ticket for a cinema or a show to booking tickets on the planes to uh, booking cabs to booking hotels to ordering food, everything is online. Our digital identity is all over the place. But the kind of controls that we have are just not there. They are invisible controls. People collect this data with impunity. And as, the, as I said, they share this data with impunity. There is no discovery process on whether there are breaches. Nobody will even find out something got breached. Then whatever got breached, the customer has no knowledge that their data was breached. Even if that was the case, they don't know what controls are there. You report to some authority, they have no clue how to deal with this situation. Millions of such complaints are lying all over the place. So I think we really need to exercise that break, which is available to us. Make sure some of these controls are brought in quickly. Well begun is half done until we have a framework. We don't know where to start. So that's where I think starting is the key. Tightening at a very quick clip is another very important key. We need to make sure that we let these regulations quickly evolve, set some examples where non-compliance gets penalized, set some examples where seriousness of these initiatives is being drilled down in corporates and in India Incorporated, make some examples of people who are selling this data left, right, and center. And over a period of time, the government and the department will give out a message that data privacy is not a guideline. It's, the, it's a rule. And we all have to play by those rules. Because if India has to become a robust digital economy, data privacy is going to play a very important role. Uh, a crumbling or vulnerable data infrastructure where privacy is compromised at the drop of a hat is not going to let us get into the Viksit Bharat in the Amrit Kaal. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Rishi. Uh, I'm sure our listeners benefited a lot from your insights. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you.